Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back, friendos. I don't know what kind of tone to have because we're recording this before the election, so I don't know how I'm going to feel. I know, and it's going to go out after the election, so we might be saying happy fall and it's the actual end of the world. And like it's actually like raining down hellfire. Yeah, which I mean is my honest prediction for what would happen if the election did not go a humane way. And I don't think it's going to go a humane way. I want to be wrong. I hope when this comes out, I am so wrong and the world is fucking like peachy keen again. I hope so, too, because I believe it will work out. I really do. I really do. So it's going to be weird to like listen back to this in a few weeks and digest it. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) It's almost as if we could go back to a simpler time. When you could trust your neighbors and <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm trying to segue into this case. Smooth move, X-Lex. Smooth uh, move. Do you remember those times when everybody says they wish they could go back to in the 60s? Girl, we were born in the middle of the 80s crack epidemic. No, I don't remember those times. Oh, but I don't think they actually existed, about. but I know white guys like to talk about it. Yeah, totally, right? It's like, good for who? <laughs> good for who, exactly. So um, I should apologize preemptively to our listeners because I sound very raspy from playing Kissy Monster with my toddler all day. I think you sound sexy. Thank you. She really likes it when you, like, go, ah, at her a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and when you do that for like, you know, 14 hours a day, it has an impact on the old vocal cords. <laughs> so, because your kid's a spooky bitch and I love it. She so really much. is. She will not let go of Halloween stuff. And she has been singing all day. She goes, It's Halloween night, not a soul in sight. I hear oh. footsteps. <laughs> oh, is that coming? And then we say what monster's coming and she <laughs> kind of acts it out. It's oh. so funny. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah, we've just been singing and like yelling and playing all day. So my voice is <laughs> pretty broken. <laughs> but luckily you are here to tell us a story of idyllic countryside, not countryside, but idyllic suburban Indiana. Yeah. What could get better? What could get more peaceful than that? This is our first time in Indiana. Really? This wow. Is our first Indiana case, which is crazy to me because this is episode 10. Yeah, that is crazy because I live here. Yeah. Weird. We are actually going to be covering a very well-known case from Indiana today. Yes. Um, probably one of the more famous cases. And I know that typically we like to kind of do more of the unknown, kind of the less covered cases, but... This is one that has stuck with me for I don't even know how long. I think I first heard of this case when I was in high school, and I've just never been able to shake it. 
which is so interesting. And so the other thing that's going to be different this time, too, is that this is a case that I know mm-hmm. as well. And so often we try to keep each other kind of in the dark with our cases and kind of surprise each other. But with this one, this is a case that I also know really well, although I didn't know about it until I moved here. Really? Yeah, because I remember looking for uh, Indiana murder stories at some point when I first moved here. <laughs> and then this kept coming up over and over again as one of the most notorious cases in the state. And it had been the first time I'd heard of it. That's, yeah. It's, it's done messed up. It's, yes, it's a very unsettling. So that is what people should know. It's, it's very unsettling. So while it is a famous case, I wouldn't be surprised if, if many of our listeners didn't know about it. And I think that even people that do know about it, we're going to go into some of the nuances of the case that I don't think are as explained as well. Yeah. Um, or covered as well. But before we kind of get into it, I I do want to let everybody know we're going to cover, there's some pretty gruesome details. And I know that this is true crime and y'all have a great stomach for that stuff. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning before we go into some of those kind of more upsetting ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's a triggering case for sure. Yeah. So... I guess I should introduce which case we're talking about. Yeah, probably. I think people are probably on the edge of their seats. I know. I'm not, but I'm in a comfy seat. I should also tell you that in preparation for this case, I may have smudged my basement and ate a bunch of chocolate to cleanse okay. the space. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> I know. Hippie shit that you don't agree with and believe in, but whatever. That's fine. I still love you. I know. I know. I support your choices as long as they're not hurting anybody. Totally, man. For sure. (laughs) All right. So today we're going to be covering the case of Sylvia Likens. Like I said, rough case and a very different kind of story of abuse and murder than I think most people are used to hearing. Yeah, it totally is. It really is. We're going to go into why that is, and I'm sure you'll explain it. Yeah. In many, many, many different ways. I think it's one of those things where we're going to come back to the bystander idea, kind of yes. like we talked about with Amanda Freud's dad. We're going to have to come back to that idea and how it was or was not in play mm-hmm. in this case as well. Yeah, exactly. I think I alluded to this case when we covered Amanda because this case mm-hmm. is the reason for the child abuse reporting laws being what they are in Indiana. Yes. All right. But I'm going to stop avoiding diving into the case. Yes, let's dive. We got to just do it. Today we are going to Indianapolis, Indiana, actually right outside of Indianapolis in a town called Lebanon. We're also going to be traveling back to the 1960s. So this is, like I had mentioned before, that time when everybody thinks it was a very ideal time in America. Yeah. When you could trust your neighbors and you could let the kids run wild in the neighborhood Mm. and the neighbors were keeping an eye on them and they would always come home at night and... Everything was happy and fine and all of that. Yeah, until it's not. And I think this is one of the many cases and many things that kind of killed that idea in America. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. And certainly in this state, especially in that indie area. Especially this was a relatively close-knit neighborhood. The families and homes are pretty close together. Like I said, you kind of open your front door, let your kids run out for the day, and just tell them to come back before the street lights turn on. Right, right. But we're going to introduce kind of our main family. Sylvia Likens was born in 1949 in Lebanon, Indiana, (laughs) the third of five children 
born to Lester and Betty. She had one older set of twins, Danny and Diana, and one younger set of twins in the family, Jenny and Denny. That is so rare. I know, that's crazy. So she was like smack dab in the middle of these twins. (laughs) Lester and Betty were kind of what you would consider the working poor. They were really struggling in a rough economy. Lester had about an eighth grade education. He would float around between factory work, laundry routes, odd jobs, selling concessions. Mm. Betty would work as a nanny, laundry. Yeah, cobbling together income kind of from disparate sources and nothing Mm -hmm. super consistent yeah but always doing what they could to kind of provide for their family eventually they kind of settled on working concessions at carnivals so selling pop beer cigarettes at these traveling carnivals that seemed to be the most consistent and the most significant income they were able to come by unfortunately because it was a traveling carnival one thing that they were very anxious about was having the kids on the road especially the girls Which I think is a pretty reasonable concern to have. Oh, yeah. I think it's more than reasonable. I mean, we'll edit it out if I'm wrong, but I feel like I know of a case that's like kind of tickling the back of my brain uh, about traveling carnival workers. Oh, I'm sure there's more than one. Yeah, there's got to be. There's got to be. It was such a transient lifestyle that it, it just kind of attracted certain ne'er-do-wells yeah yeah for sure and if if it's not a real case it's definitely a season of american horror story but either way there's like it's just tickling the back of my brain where i'm like there's no way that's not reasonable to not want your children to be on that trail with you that season of american horror story is one of my all-time favorites me too that and coven and oh nothing ever beats coven for me ever nothing ever could nothing ever could all right anyway back to this (laughs) Um, so also one of the reasons why they especially were anxious about having the girls and Jenny specifically on the road with them was that Jenny was afflicted with polio in early childhood, which left her with one poor leg that kind of didn't grow correctly that required a brace and really limited her mobility. Yeah. So typically while they were traveling, the kids would stay with their grandparents or other family members while Lester and Betty were out kind of earning money and they would send it back home to grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever was taking care of the kids. Mm-hmm. As they got older, I think that Denny would join them for a period of time. And Diana had married and moved out of the family kind of on her own by the age of 18. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of what you did at that back then. Yeah, 60s. Um, Sylvia also went by Cookie to her family and close friends. Sylvia was described as friendly, confident, and lively. She, like all children, all 16-year-olds in the 60s, loved the Beatles. Aw. Loved dancing and roller skating. She was described as pretty much just a happy kid, but she always smiled with her mouth closed because she had lost a front tooth in a fight with one of her siblings when she was young. Aww. I also, I feel you, girl. I smiled with my mouth closed um, until I was like 14. Oh my gosh. It took me until college. I wouldn't even smile in my senior pictures because of my little gappy tooth. Oh no, I had the most jacked up teeth as a kid. Oh my God. A significant orthodontia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And now your teeth are so beautiful. Uh, orthodontia, man. Yeah. And my gap is cute. I love your gap. I love gap teeth. I do too. I now I think it's charming, but back then I completely understand where she was coming from. I would not. No school picture saw me smiling. 
once I realized that my teeth were different. But all that to say, we understand tooth issues. We understand tooth insecurity. Yeah, and smile insecurity. Yeah. The picture of her that is the most distributed is probably a yearbook picture. Mm -hmm. She's beautiful. I mean, it's black and white. I saw one colorized version of it. Um, but you can just tell in that picture, even though she's not smiling with her mouth open, she's mm -hmm. smiling with her eyes. And she's, mm -hmm. I don't know, she just looks like such a sweet, sweet, nice kid. Like, I know that this family struggled a lot, but... They seemed so happy. Yeah. And it, I don't know. I guess like that makes it like that much harder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was I don't know if it would apply here, but it was always something that we heard a lot of growing up, like um, poor and money, rich in love. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. seems like that might be what's yeah. going on here, too. Yeah. And again, we're going to talk about kind of some of the struggles the family had, but the kids genuinely seemed happy. And to this day, Jenny says like we were an okay family we had our hurdles but we we attacked them together yeah and you've got parents that are doing the best they know how to do by you mm -hmm. you know yeah. yeah so another thing about sylvia was that she was absolutely fiercely protective of jenny mm. like do she we know, what was the age difference between them there was about a three-year age difference i believe oh, okay so not a terribly huge gap but I think that she was just so protective of Jenny with her, with the disability. She would never let anybody make fun of her little sister. Good. She always made sure that Jenny was in the roller skating rink with her. They were buddies and they were awesome. Yeah, that's so sweet. I love that. Sylvia would also kind of help out the family by, again, taking up babysitting and ironing jobs and, you know, doing tasks and helping out around the family, whatever she could. And by all accounts, Lester and Betty were good parents. They loved their kids. Um, they did do a little corporal punishment. Also, again, not atypical for the time in the 60s. No, and I think not atypical now. Yeah. Even really. Yeah. Yeah. So they did what they had with what they had which was really little so that's going to bring us to the summer of 1965 when the family was staying around indianapolis where their grandparents lived lester and betty had had an argument one day in it was either late june or early, real early july um betty threatened to leave the family and stormed out of the house oh wow and yeah and apparently that wasn't super atypical for the family again there was so much stress going on yeah she always came back it was always just kind of blow off steam and come on back to the home you know yeah emotions run high i think is when you're in a stressful situation otherwise right yeah. like you're just yeah. going to be kind of operating from a place of panic or hurt you know exactly yeah at some point while she was gone this time however she was arrested for petty theft oh but Lester didn't know that. He straight up didn't know where his wife was, and they were supposed to be leaving to head to the East Coast to meet up with the carnival in the next few days. This eventually got sorted out, but I don't kind of know when exactly Betty got released from jail gotcha. or anything like that. Eventually, they did meet back up at the carnival. Okay. But again, knowing that he had to leave soon, he didn't know where his wife was. He didn't have a place for his kids to go while they were on the road mm -hmm. working. Diane, like I said, was married at the time, was starting her own family. Danny and Benny were st going to stay with their grandmother. However, she said she just simply wasn't going to be able to take care of all four of the kids. 
Gotcha. I always wondered why they got split up. So that explains that. Yeah. I think that the boys were kind of able to help out the grandmother a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of health she was in or anything like that. Yeah. Again, I don't think, think that she was real well off. Indiana economically wasn't doing great at this time. No. So. Yeah. Not that we're crazy prosperous now. <laughs> well, that's not what Mike Pence tells me. Yeah, so you should definitely listen to all the words that Mike Pence tells you. Mm. <laughs> That's a face. <laughs> That's a I have face. so many faces for Mike Pence. I know, me too. And he only has one for you, and it looks like this. Y'all know you visualized the face. Yep, you have the face in your mind right now. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so Sylvia had actually... Just being around the community had made friends with Paula Banaszewski, who was 17 years old. On July 3rd, 1965, Sylvia and Jenny were invited over to Paula's house, drink some pop, listen to music, nothing out of the ordinary for a 16-year-old, right? Yeah, I know. At the time, everything seemed pretty fine, normal, um, but the house was really crowded was the thing. Mm. Paula was one of seven kids that lived wow. in the house with their mother, Gertrude. When Lester just kind of asking around the community, hey, have you seen my kids? Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey, have you seen Sylvia? I'm really looking for her. Yeah, but Lebanon is small and it's still small now. So mm -hmm. it must've been even smaller then. So exactly. that wouldn't be, it's not exactly like you're knocking door to door in Chicago or Detroit. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's not weird to just like knock around the neighborhood. I'm pretty sure my parents probably did it when I was a kid. I'm sure they did, trying to find your crazy ass. <laughs> did you see the brunette dragging the blonde down the street? <laughs> <There you> <laughs> <laughs> Please let us know. <laughs> Thank you. So Lester eventually found them over at um, the Banaszewski house. Um, where he chatted up with Paula's mother, Gertrude, and he let her know about the situation. Hey, I'm going out of town. I don't know what to do with my kids. And Gertrude eventually came to the agreement with him that she would board the two girls for $20 a week. Okay. He had agreed to this without going into the house, without meeting the family or anything. Gertrude also, and we're going to revisit this, introduced herself as Gertrude Wright, and said that her husband was overseas. Again, super untrue, but we're going to go into why she said that. Had Lester gone into the home, he would have realized that this was not kind of the happy situation that Gertrude was kind of putting on. There weren't enough bedrooms or beds for everyone in the home. There wasn't enough mm. food. There weren't even enough dishes for the seven kids that lived in the house. Wow. And it was just absolutely filthy and kind of falling into disrepair. And just as a sidebar, I was just curious, like adjusted for inflation, what that cost would be. Mm -hmm. And so he was paying 660 today dollars a month for his kids to oh stay there. Oh, my God. So in Indiana now, I mean, 10 years ago when I first moved here, my rent was 425 Shut up. In South Bend. I know. I'm sorry. I mean, it was a terrible place to live. You saw it. but I mean, so was my first apartment in Chicago, and it was three times that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on both counts. But so he's paying $660 a month to board his two girls in that situation. Like when a decent apartment around here in $2020 might run you a, a grand a month. 
I was going to mention this later, but her monthly rent on the house was $50 a month. Wow. Yeah. So, so she's taking in. She's, she's, she's churning a profit. Do she's churning a profit on these kids. Yeah. I think Lester was kind of in a bind and the girls, I I do believe the girls were like, let us stay, let us stay, it's our friend. Kind of. Yeah, oh yeah, I'd imagine so. And like, kind of sounds like, even though there's all this poverty and, and lack, that I think sometimes even teenagers don't necessarily see that when yeah. they're looking at something that's just different from what they know, right? So you're looking yeah. at like all these kids, all these activities, mm-hmm. all this stuff going on, like... I could see a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old not even noticing those yeah. things right oh, yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that, again, to them, it seemed like a normal day, a normal house. Yeah. This was just their community. Yeah. So after the holiday weekend, Sylvia and Jenny moved into the Banishevsky house. Again, held Gertrude and her seven children, which meant that all together there were 10 people in one home. Okay. That's a lot. It is a lot. And this is kind of the point where I want to take a step back and talk about who Gertrude was. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Gertrude's history. Let's, please. She was born Gertrude Van Fossen in 1929. She was the third of six children born smack dab in the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Her mother was reported to be very frigid, a very cold, off-putting woman. Mm. However, she was apparently very, very close with her father. Okay. Until the age of 10 when she witnessed her father die suddenly. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And I'm not quite sure what he died of. Um, I Mm. couldn't find records of that anywhere. Yeah. In 1945, she dropped out of school to be with John Banaszewski. And two years later, when she was 18... The two married and eventually had four children in that marriage. Okay. Now, John Banaszewski was described as violent and volatile. Oh, scary. He would reportedly beat her for, quote, annoying him. Mm. After about 10 years in 1955, they divorced. Gertrude got custody of all of the children, but at the time she had no job, no income, no education. She got a little bit of child support from John, but that was super inconsistent. Yeah. Within a year, she met and married a man named Edward Guthrie. Guthrie. Guthrie, yeah. But I'm sure we'll get to why she went by Wright. Yes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I was expecting you to say, like, Ronald Wright or something like that. Right. Nope, not yet. See, Uh, it's funny because I know everything about Sylvia, but I don't know much about Gertrude at all. In a lot of, like, the things I was reading in the podcast, they don't go into her at all. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's it's relevant to know how she got this way. Oh, it totally is. It totally is. Because she's the centerpiece of everything later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so these are not, like, fake canned reactions, people. I really don't know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I am actually excited that you don't know some of this stuff. Yeah, I know everything that happens, like, in 65 yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know any of this. And I knew about Sylvia's parents, but I didn't know anything about Gertrude. Yeah. This is the part that kind of never gets any explanation. And again, I think like any time we talk about somebody's history, in no way does it excuse what they did. No. In no way at all. Yeah. But it means a lot to have the context as to how they got this way. Yeah. And, you know, I think so many times we 
hear about cases and we listen to cases and we ask, why did this happen? I mean, that's why I like true crime. Why are you like this? Totally. Why are you like this? It's also my favorite thing to say to students. (laughs) Why are you like this? I mean, that's literally my career is why are you like this? Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't I don't understand why we don't hear more of those backstories. But welcome to Midwretched. We got you on some backstories. backstories. Oh, cute. We need that on a T-shirt. So within a year, um, she married Edward Guthrie. So now we're up to 1956. But he divorced her after just three months when, quote, he tired of having her children around. Oh, wow. Yeah, he sounds like a winner. Yeah, and she's only got four at this point. She's four at this point, yes. Okay. Shortly after that divorce, she reconciled and remarried John. Vanishevsky. Vanishevsky. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. So divorced, married, divorced, married within a year. Got it. They had two more children together. So they have six kids. Okay. He continued to be abusive, and then they finally permanently divorced in 1963. Got it. Okay. And she never heard from again. Again, there was intermittent child support coming. Yeah. Now, just a few weeks later, she met the 22-year-old Dennis Lee Wright. 22? 22. She's only 34. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're going to talk about this because she looks way older. She does. When you see those pictures, I do not see a woman in their 30s. Yeah. Yeah. So she met 22-year-old Dennis Lee Wright and moved in with him almost immediately. Gotcha. She had two more pregnancies with Dennis. Only one resulted in a child and one ended in a miscarriage, likely due to the abuse that she suffered in that relationship. Gosh, that's horrific. Yeah. I mean, this this woman spent her entire life being beaten. Yeah, she really did. After the one child was born, Dennis abandoned them and disappeared. Wow. Okay. But that was when she continued to use his name and Mm. tell people that they were married and that he was overseas in the military. Gotcha. Okay. I think that her reputation and how people viewed her meant a lot. Yeah. I think that she tried to cover up a lot to get people's approval Mm -hmm. and to feel respected and powerful. Yeah. And I think even if you don't have that impulse, marital problems are embarrassing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just is. Yeah. Like it's it's humiliating. And if if this is her fourth marriage and she's in her mid 30s, especially in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, so I could see, like, just very understandable human reasons to not, to fib about it, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I let kids call me missus for the entire, the rest of the school year that I got divorced because I was like, I didn't want to correct them because it was embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's such an unfair thing that's put on women. Like, men don't Oh, it's terrible. I know. I know. And here I'm about to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, it's 1965. Gertrude is 36. She has seven children. And I know I mentioned the one miscarriage, but it's estimated that she had at least six miscarriages. Wow. Due to illness, malnutrition, or abuse. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. I think it also bears saying that, um, and this is just kind of me theorizing, but I want to be like very 
honest about like the type of abuse she probably suffered. I mean, I think when you're in marriages like that and there's that violence, I'm sure that many of those pregnancies were a result of spousal rape, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's be completely straight up. Yeah. So I think that's just because there will be some weird sexual stuff later and that just hadn't really occurred to me before because I didn't know that about her. But, mm-hmm. you know, she's she's going to be an abuse survivor, a rape survivor, mm-hmm. all these things. And I can't help myself but to build a psychological profile of people. Yeah. And I think that that's a big piece of why she thinks the way she thinks and what she does and yeah. dictates to be done to Sylvia. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. So her children and 1965, when Sylvia and Jenny move into the house, are Paula, who's age 17, Stephanie, 15, John, age 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, age 10, James, age 8, and little Dennis, who's just one year old. Family is pretty destitute. They have no regular income aside from the occasional child support payments. Odd jobs that Gertrude was able to pick up around the town, babysitting, laundry route, sewing, cleaning, that sort of thing. On top of that, her oldest daughter, Paula, and I'm curious if you knew this, Paula had left the home, dropped out of high school, and had an affair with a married man in Kentucky. Whoa, no, I did know that. that. I did not know that. I knew that she dropped out of high school. Yeah. But I didn't know the why. That's really interesting. Yeah. She ran away to Kentucky, had an affair with a married man, and she came running back home pregnant. Whoa. Yeah. So I that I did not know. I knew that she dropped out. I didn't know the other stuff. But my wheels are turning. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on top of that, so now we're on, what, layer three or something now? Yeah. Um, Gertrude's health was failing due to an unknown chronic illness. She had basically ceased good basic hygiene practices. Mm. She was barely eating. She was starting to look really skeletal. Uh, that must be why she looks so much older in the pictures. I mean, on top of regular stress. Yeah. Yeah, she looks... Guys, we'll post the pictures on the social medias. But her courtroom pictures, she looks about 50, at least yeah. 50. And that's not to be like ageist or besmirching other women because we definitely don't believe in that. It's just yeah. kind of interesting that like, I think if you were just browsing pictures of that case, you would not think that this was a young woman. Yeah, all. no, she's at this point two three years older than I am and I look at her and I'm like oh my god yeah it's totally different she is described in one um one of the news articles released at the time described her as haggard underweight and asthmatic wow yeah she was also known to be abusive to her own children Mm, and this is also one thing that's really misreported it's reported in a lot of places that she never touched her own kids she treated her own kids great But that's untrue based on everything reported at the time. One of her husbands, and I don't know which one, apparently got mad after she hit Paula once. And Mm. she responded to him by saying, I'll hit her anytime or any way or any place I want. Wow. Which is probably something that she was echoing back that had been said to her in one form or fashion. Oh, yeah. What? I mean, it's just that cycle of abuse. It's a cycle. Yeah, Yeah, totally. 
you get abused, you abuse the person below you, they abuse the person below them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's really important to note that the she was abusing her own children as yes. well. I think that that's important because it does get misreported. It does. It totally does. And it's it doesn't fit in with like the I don't know. We've talked about it before, like what kinds of cases and what parts of cases get talked about and what doesn't. And this is one of those things that it makes it more nuanced than we want it to be. Yeah. So there are two movies based on this case, An American Crime with mm-hmm. Ellen Page, which is great. Highly recommend it. Go watch it. It is really good. And then The Girl Next Door, which is terrible. I never watched that one. It takes this case and shoves it into that nice, clean narrative that people want to see. Yeah. And so you lose everything that's interesting about it to me. Yeah. Which the Ellen Page movie does not particularly do. It definitely is not. It's pretty scathing. It's pretty scathing. Yeah. Yeah. But all of that to say this is the house that Jenny and Sylvia moved into. Early in July, things start off pretty okay. Mm. The kids got along pretty well. They didn't seem bothered by the conditions at home. Like you said, I think that that was kind of the way of the neighborhood, the way of the community. They were used to it. Yeah. Gertrude had kind of won them over. I think she kind of spoiled them a little bit to Mm. win them over. Yeah. Again, getting them pop and getting them like music and all of this stuff. Yeah. And I think at the time early on, it just kind of felt like a sleepover. Yeah, I could totally see that. And when you were talking about Paula and the affair and all this stuff, and she's a year older than Sylvia, but she seems like if you put yourself in a 16 year old's shoes, that it's going to seem so exotic and so interesting and so like you're going to want to be close to that because it's it feels so adult mm-hmm. right so i yeah. could see part of that being kind of the appeal for sylvia and jenny too like we have this kind of really cool big sister that's doing all these worldly interesting things yeah yeah exactly yeah. like oh you ran away where'd you go yeah yeah exactly so but she came back pregnant are we going to go back to that oh yeah Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Jenny and Sylvia were actually really helping out around the house, doing housework. They attended Sunday school with the family. Sylvia was even volunteering around the community doing odd jobs, just like she had with her own parents. Mm. So it's not like they were being super spoiled in this house. From what it sounds like, Sylvia did have a good sense of responsibility and a good sense of duty of like, I should be appreciative and I'm going to contribute, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's obviously a value that was important to her parents, too. I mean, they were looking at a really shitty and difficult economic situation, but they were going to work hard and find work where they could get it and take care of their kids. And that stuff doesn't go unnoticed by children. No, you know, no, they pick up those habits. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the payments from Lester and Betty started to come in late. And when I say late, I mean like a day. He never stopped making payments. And I do want that to be clear because another, I think, kind of misreading of this story is that Lester and Betty just abandoned their kids there. Yeah. And that's that's the misreading that I feel like I hear the most that makes me the most pissed off is Mm -hmm. like her parents like ran away to join the circus or some shit and stopped taking care of their kids. No, they were they were making regular payments. I mean, you can't stop the postal service from being a day late or getting paid a day late and it right. happens. And they were also taking the train and driving back as much as they could. Yeah. Yeah. 
So. And they were just, they were trying. That's, I guess that's my big thing that I keep getting frustrated about is like, they were trying. They were trying. And to put myself in their shoes, I don't know what else, like given the options that they had, I don't know what else I could have done. Yeah. They're, I don't think you could have done anything else. I think they were really trying. Yeah. So I get, I don't know. I get really kind of offended when people take that. Stance. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. So like I said, typically the payments might come like a day later. So However, after the very first late payment, Gertrude slapped Jenny across the face and yelled at her, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. Wow. And that's kind of how the abuse started with mm. slapping, hitting, and spanking with like a fraternity paddle. Yikes. And that was like within the purview of the things she was doing to her own children. Yes. Yes. And also, again, the spanking and things were also within the purview of what Lester and Betty were doing. Yeah. Like I said, Lester and Betty came home to visit pretty regularly. Um, and early on, things seemed fine. The girls seemed okay. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. They, however, were never seen by Lester and Betty without Gertrude present. Mm. So they never had a moment alone with the kids. Gertrude really kept an eye on what was being said and how it was being said and kind of stand up straight and tell your parents everything is good. Yeah. But over the next few weeks, the abuse would rapidly escalate. Yeah. And Gertrude started to really focus her abuse on Sylvia mm. rather than Jenny. Yeah. She started accusing Sylvia of stealing, of eating too much. And Paula started in on the abuse as well. Mm. Gertrude and Paula would both together kick, punch, and refuse to feed Sylvia. Then when they would allow her to eat, they would force feed her until she threw up. Yeah. So we have gone from a slap to force feeding, punching, and kicking within a few weeks of time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... That really, I think we should definitely talk about these dates a lot because everything is so rapid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a timeline of kind of the last few weeks where it starts to really just go bonkers in its escalation. Yeah, it completely. Yeah. Now, one of the things I want to talk about is kind of why Gertrude started to focus the abuse on Sylvia. Yeah. Because it started pretty early on. And I think that that's also something that when it's discussed is a really reductive discussion. People will say, oh, Gertrude was just jealous because Sylvia was so pretty and she got attention and she was so smart. And so Gertrude and Paula both hated her because of that. Mm. But I don't think that's all there is. Right. I mean, that's certainly a slice of it. But mm -hmm. to boil it down to just that. It is reductive. It totally is. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. I think that one of the biggest reasons beyond the jealousy or beyond anything is Sylvia's protectiveness yeah. over Jenny. That even early on, Sylvia would volunteer to take punishments for Jenny. Yeah. And speaking psychologically, when somebody is that protective of somebody else, it's actually you get more control over that person by abusing only one of them. Yeah. So like if you have Sylvia and Jenny, you have more control over the situation by only abusing Sylvia because 
as long as there's a threat that her little sister will get hurt. She'll comply. She'll comply. Yeah. And Jenny's so used to having Sylvia protect her. I think, I don't think she would have ever known what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we also can't forget that Jenny was 13. Yeah. As well. So I don't think that was a deterrent for Gertrude at all. But I certainly would think that, like, you know, if you're Jenny, I think some of the other stuff I've heard is like, why didn't Jenny do anything? And it's that question that's like so frustrating. Why did you go back to your abuser? Why this, mm-hmm, this, this? Mm-hmm. It's like there is so much more psychological control than you could ever understand you not ever being in that understand. situation. Yeah. I think if Gertrude had started abusing Jenny in any way, approaching the way that she treated Sylvia, that she would have grabbed yeah. Jenny and run away. Yeah. And then she loses control of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something that you do see, I think, from the images of her as, you know, even though she does look kind of haggard and, you know, like she's been through some stuff, there's not a hair out of place either Mm -hmm. when she's in those courtroom photos. Mm -hmm. So it's like that there's control there, too, you know. But, yeah, I think that Gertrude had more control by only abusing Sylvia. Yeah, I think that totally parses. And I think she read that situation like a fucking book. Yeah. And just took control of it. And I do think, I think Jenny was paralyzed with fear. Yeah. And she's also just in kind of a, she's naturally subjugated position being, she has, she's a disability. She's 13 years old. She's got her own baggage too, you know? Yeah. Cause Jenny would have been an easy target to abuse. And I hate to say it that way, but people with physical disabilities are more likely to be abused. Yeah, they are for sure. Because she couldn't run away. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but that feels too easy for Gertrude. Yeah. I think it gave her a lot more power to abuse Sylvia, and I think that that's yeah. what she wanted. It totally is, especially when we talk about kind of what can what starts to happen soon. Yes, yes, yeah. what, what is going about to start happening? Mm-hmm. Because then we're going to get to the end of August and early September. The girls enroll in school together at Arsenal Technical School, and this is when the abuse started to kind of take that weird turn. Yeah, the girls, like I said, they were attending church and. They were, like, quote, saved at the church. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go to church and you get saved. I don't understand. Yeah. But born again. Born again. There you go. Um, Indiana's weird. I mean, it's the whole Bible Belt, my dear. <laughs> the whole Bible Belt. I know. It I is. don't get it. I know. Uh, I anyway. Know. So, but it was, it was after that point that Gertrude started getting really religious in her abuse and her accusations, mm-hmm. accusing Sylvia of being, quote, unclean. Sylvia is now in high school with Paula and Stephanie. Like high school girls do, you start talking, you start gossiping. One of them had asked Sylvia if she had, quote, done anything with a boy. Mm. And I don't think that Sylvia really understood what this meant because she kind of played along and said, oh, yeah, I've done stuff with a boy. Right. And what she meant was she had gone skating with a boy and she held his hand and they laid under a blanket together. Mm-hmm. And then Gertrude accused Sylvia of getting a big belly. Oh, yeah. And that was That's when. That's right. Yeah. And that was when Paula, who remember is pregnant. Yeah. Started kicking Sylvia in the stomach and the crotch so much that she knocked her off a chair 
and then said you ain't fit to sit in a chair. Yeah, I remember that one. Now, here is my question, like in terms of the timeline. I don't know how far along Paula was or if Gertrude knew that she was pregnant. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question because she was certainly pregnant when they moved in because that was part of Gertrude's baggage, right? Like Mm -hmm. you'd kind of describe that that was the scene that they were moving into. So, yeah, but I don't know if Gertrude knew that. Mm, okay yeah so yeah i mean you could try to trace it back but even if if we said like okay maybe paula was six weeks pregnant in early july that would mean by mid-september she was maybe four months along Mm -hmm. so you may or may not even be showing at that point depending on your size i didn't show until five six months Mm -hmm. so i show after a pretzel (laughs) (laughs) girl these days i do before i had my kid (laughs) and a much different body (laughs) so yeah i mean i could see i could see that being either way like Mm -hmm. because that would be if we guessed that she was between four and five months pregnant yeah and that's a toss-up i think and because that's also when Gertrude starts to insist that Sylvia's pregnant. Gotcha. She starts insisting and yelling at Sylvia that she's pregnant. She's a prostitute. She ran away and got married and got pregnant by a married man. So this is an act of ex- intensive extreme transference and projection. Yes. She is yeah. projecting like a motherfucker. Yeah. <sighs> so Freud is like doing cartwheels in his grave. <laughs> As we talk about this. <laughs> and by Freud, you mean Anna Freud, his daughter, who actually invented that concept. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. We're correcting oh, history. Goodness. That's right. <laughs> the face he just made. <laughs> All right. Where was I? So then this is where it starts to get kind of childish in terms of like, okay, yeah, these are 16 and 17 year old girls. Yeah. Stephanie and Paula start spreading a rumor at school that Sylvia is a prostitute. And Sylvia retaliates by spreading a rumor that Stephanie is a prostitute. Mm. And when Stephanie found out about this, when they were over at Gertrude's house, Stephanie punched her in the face. Wow. And okay, Stephanie's weird and we're going to get to it later. Okay. But so Stephanie punched Sylvia in the face and then Stephanie started crying. Oh, interesting. And then Sylvia started crying, and then they apologized to each other. Which, does that not sound like the most 16-year-old thing in the world? It does. That has been the most normal thing about any of these relationships so far, to be honest. Like, I think I had that fight. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Not with me, but... (laughs) Not with you, no. But yeah, totally. I can picture a billion iterations of that fight without the punch in the face, but I can picture that conversation as like a centerpiece of teenage life. Yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't really happen at Death Cab for Cutie concerts. (laughs) Happened at anti-flag shows. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so, and so to, for the two of them, that was where that fight ended. Yeah. But that's not where it ended for Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard. 
Ah, uh, yeah, right. When Koi found out, he fucking lost it. Yeah. He slapped her and started banging her head against the wall and then threw her head first toward the floor. And this was in Gertrude's this home. This was in Gertrude's home still. Gertrude witnessed it. She was fine with it. She just let it happen. Yeah. In fact, she followed up by paddling her with the paddle. Yeah. And that became kind of the tone for the abuse moving forward. Yeah. Gertrude repeatedly accusing Sylvia of being a prostitute, being unclean. She even went so far as to talk to their priest about it. Yeah. Reverend Julian visited the home as part of kind of this community engagement thing. Mm-hmm. And had coffee with Gertrude and listened to Gertrude's complaining about Sylvia that she's filthy. She doesn't take care of herself. She's a prostitute. She's pregnant. And insisting then that Sylvia was trying to pass off her misdeeds onto her poor, pure Paula. Mm. Like, we're just coming full circle with this projection. Yeah, we really are. Reverend Julian, I, I'm just imagining his face while he's saying this. Yeah. And he just kind of said, okay, yeah, I will pray for Sylvia. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that, like, at this point, we've gotten far enough into the timeline that Sylvia would be showing, like, very obvious signs mm -hmm. of abuse. Like, she would be having bruises. She's malnourished. She's very thin. Mm -hmm. When she dies, she's very, very thin. Very, very thin. Yeah. And she is still going to school. She's still engaging in the community. Mm -hmm. um, she's going to church. She's, she's going to church. Things. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of the witnesses that were that testified to what yeah. they saw. So we're going to go into some of those testimonies. Julian visited multiple times mm. and he saw Sylvia. Yeah. He saw the condition that she was in. Julian said that told Gertrude that you have so you have so much hate in your heart and you need to forgive Sylvia. Mm. And Gertrude said, "No, it's the opposite." Yeah, I was going to say, there's no way that Gertrude responds to that. No. With no. any, like, self-awareness at all. Mm -hmm. At some point, Gertrude starts just randomly going on rants, kicking Sylvia in the genitals while lecturing her about the evils of premarital sex. She whipped her with a police belt, burnt her mm -hmm. fingers with matches. And even at one point, Stephanie did step in and try to defend Sylvia saying that she didn't do anything. Like I said, Stephanie's a weird case in this situation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Lester and Betty are coming up to visit all the way through September. They only ever saw the girls in the presence of Gertrude, like I said, and neither would say anything. Yeah. But I'm really wondering if they did see any of these bruises, any of these marks, their kids losing weight, anything like that. Well, if you're Gertrude... Mm -hmm. You would make sure that they were probably wearing baggy clothes. Mm -hmm. You would make sure that they were wearing long sleeves, you know, a high, high collar. You know, I could see like if you curated it the right way, mm -hmm. you may be able to pass that off. Yeah. Yeah. And she's yeah. not really al allowing them to speak freely. I'm yeah. sure she has an excuse for every bruise, every single thing mm -hmm. that's going on with these kids. Yeah. At some point, the beatings start escalating to the point where they're not even for punishment anymore. They're just for entertainment. 
Yeah. So much so that the boys, Corey and the oldest son, John, start inviting their friends over. Yeah. To help partake in the abuse. Now, there's one boy that seemed to be one of the centers of everything named Ricky Hobbs. Uh, Ricky. Ricky was a 14 or 15-year-old boy. He was a little weird. He was very religious. He was an honor roll student, but kind of typical middle-class family, nothing super outstanding about him. Mm. No previous legal or behavioral problems. But once he started hanging out the house, people at school, his parents, and all of that started to report a change in his personality. Mm. He would blindly do whatever Gertrude told him to do. He seemed to take the most pleasure in the abuse of Sylvia. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to point out is that while I was doing the research, there were some reports that Gertrude, quote, seduced him and that they were lovers. Yeah, I've read that before. I want to point out that he was 14. Yeah. So that would be rape, and let's just call that what it is. Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. that maybe people have a hard time with that, of holding two things. That he was abusing and torturing a 16-year-old girl and he was also being raped yeah. by a 36-year-old woman. Yeah, but I, I mean, again, like, it's more often the case that it's a cycle, not a one-off. Yeah. Like, you know, so I think it stands to reason that that he could have been both an abuser and abused. Yeah. You know? I Absolutely just, stands to reason. And I think that it's important that we kind of hold both of those things. Yeah. Practice our dialectics. Absolutely. Gosh, that's like the slogan of my life. I feel like, you know, nuance is so uncomfortable and holding mm -hmm. two things that seem disparate is uncomfortable, but yeah. it's human nature and we have to mm -hmm. acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is also kind of important as to maybe why did he enjoy this abuse so much? Why was he so vicious in it? Yeah. Because he was vicious. He was vicious. Sadistic and... Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these boys were were really sadistic. Yeah. John, the oldest son as well, seemed to be pretty equally taking part in the abuse. To the point of just pure humiliation of Sylvia. Starving her, taunting her, doing things like making her eat soup with her fingers. And this is where I think it's weird. I think that it's it's this mixture of these really childish things. Like, I'm going to make this really gross soup and make you eat it. Yeah, the hot dog always stands out to me when I read or hear about this case. Yeah. Because they put together like a hot dog with like crazy spicy condiments. Yeah. And like forced her to eat it. And then when she threw up, they forced her to eat the vomit. Uh-huh. And that like the first half of that feels like a kid's experiment. Like it feels like every blender and see if you'll old do boy, it. right? Yeah. I mean, my brother certainly was like I'm going to put all this random stuff in a blender and then smell it. And it's going to be crazy. You, you know? don't even have to dare 14-year-old boys to do that. It's no, they're just, just going to do it. Yeah, it's just yeah. in their DNA. <laughs> yeah, it's just that these boys are taking it. Yeah, and then they take another it. step. Yeah. Yeah. Many more steps. Many more steps. They're taking it like 20 flights. But then the other side of that is they would like force her to strip naked in front of all of these other kids that had come into the house. Yeah. Coy Hubbard, uh, Stephanie's boyfriend, would invite classmates over to taunt Sylvia, use her for judo practice. Yeah. So flipping her onto the floor and knocking her head against the wall, punching and kicking her. 
they would start burning her with cigarettes. And this is the part where I'm going to give a little bit of a warning. And if you guys are sensitive at all to sexual assaults, flash forward a good 30, 60 seconds. Yeah. This is hard to hear. Yeah. Yeah. They started injuring her genitals and sexually tormenting her. At one point, they forced her to strip naked and force a pop bottle into her vagina in front of Jenny, quote, to prove to Jenny what kind of girl you are. Yeah. And again, it's using the sister against her, too. Yeah. Which makes Jenny a pawn in all of it. It's not show all these people. It's show Jenny how you're really like. Yeah. We're going to drag Jenny down here. Yeah. And make her watch. Yeah. The boys started to charge a nickel to the kids in the community to allow them to come over and take part in the abuse. Yeah. Eventually, because of the bruises and everything else, uh, Gertrude no longer allowed Sylvia to attend school. She Mm. was starting to get attention. Yeah. Now, Gertrude said that this was because Sylvia had stolen a gym uniform and stolen a single shoe for Jim for Jenny. Hmm. Like I said, I think that it was because seem, people seemed to start noticing the bruises and things like yeah, that. Probably the weight loss and the. You also imagine she's going to be limping. She's going to be moving strangely. It's yeah. going to be a big, very visible change. Yeah. Um. So now I'm going to talk about some of the witnesses and what they said. This comes mostly from court testimony. Yeah. Um, one neighbor, I don't have the, the name of this neighbor, but one neighbor did call the school reporting that they had seen a girl with sores all over her body. Mm-hmm. The school did send a nurse to check in on Sylvia after she didn't attend school for several days. Gertrude claimed that Sylvia's sores were because Sylvia started to refuse to maintain hygiene. Mm. And Gertrude went on to complain that Sylvia was a bad influence on her children. Mm. And Which is, again, a projection of her own mm-hmm. like loss of interest in maintaining her own hygiene. Exactly. Which was something that you'd noted in the beginning. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the school didn't follow up after this. <sighs> I know. I know. Mm. So now we're going to talk about Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. Yeah, they're interesting. Yeah. So Phyllis and Raymond were a middle-aged couple next door that had two kids. They had just moved into the area, and they thought that Gertrude might be a good babysitter. They always saw kids around the house, kids going in and out. The kids seemed fine. So they set up a barbecue so that the families could meet and get to know each other. Mm. So Midwestern. So Midwestern. (laughs) So the Vermilion set up this barbecue so that the two families could meet. At the barbecue, they see Sylvia walking around the yard in a dazed, complete daze. Yeah. Super awkward. She has a black eye. They say something about it, and Paula brags about being the one that gave it to her. Mm-hmm. And then Gertrude instructed Paula to throw steaming water at Sylvia's face in front of the Vermilions. Good gracious, I didn't know that. And nothing was reported. Wow. 
The Vermilions went over there again about two months later. So this is all in that span between July and October. Mm-hmm. Um, where they again saw Sylvia, quote, in a daze with her eye shut, her eye swollen shut, and her lips swollen. Ugh, that poor child. Paula then demonstrated how she did it. Oh my god. And once again, they didn't report it. I mean, I think there was just no culture for that back then. No. Like, no. You know, like social services were not what we know them to be or want them to be yeah. in any way, shape, or form. And I think violence in some ways was probably way more normalized then than it was now, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I think in the, this was a day and age where it was very easy to normalize something in your head. Yeah, totally, totally. Oh, oh the girls were probably fighting. Oh, she's right. just she's just having a weird day. She's probably high on the reefer. Exactly. <laughs> it's reefer madness. <laughs> or they just like they want it. I mean, they want it to make sense so badly because this is the neighborhood we've moved into that now this is our neighbors. This is, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be next to a terrible situation. And I mean, like we talked about it with um, with Amanda of yeah. like, well, this is our community. Nobody from our community would do this. Right. We Yeah. This doesn't happen in Lebanon, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Now, also, there was 12 year old Judy Duke. Mm. She was one of the kids that had paid a nickel to take part in the abuse. She went home one day after leaving Gertrude's house and told her mom, quote, they were beating and kicking Sylvia. And her mother responded by saying, that's what happens when somebody was punished. Wow. And again, I don't, it's hard because I'm sure that mom didn't know what was going on and she's just like, whatever, my 12 year old is just saying random shit. Well, and if that, if corporal punishment is so common mm-hmm. and you say, you know, they were beaten, beaten on her. Yeah. Oh, they were giving her a whooping. Like, right. Like that doesn't, it's not, she didn't say they poured a pot of boiling water on her face. They didn't say, you know, I watched her eat uh, vomit, you know, mm-hmm. like that. I think I'd like to think that that would raise some serious alarm bells. But if, you know, we're operating in a community where spankings and whoopings are common and every parent is doing it Mm -hmm. she probably thought her kid just went over and saw a spanking happen having a paddle or having a belt were not uncommon and wouldn't have raised an eyebrow at all right right Um, i think there's plenty of communities still where pulling out the belt oh is within the range of normal still indiana yeah i mean i've had this conversation a million times so i think like that one doesn't feel as like, wow, they didn't report that to mm-hmm. me as the Vermilions does. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Because they saw her like wandering around in a daze. Like, that's alarming. Yeah. You know? So then we're going to talk about Sylvia and Jenny's older sister, Diana. Mm. So Diana lived in the same town. Yeah. One day they actually were able to find her at a park. Mm. And the two of them told Diana that they were being abused. And again, at the time, Diana didn't believe him. She thought they were exaggerating because their dad would spank them and slap them, too. Yeah. And she's like, you probably like you just want to get out. You just want to live with me. You're not going to live with me Mm. kind of thing. Sylvia said that she was hungry and Diana gave her a sandwich at least. But then when they got home, Gertrude found out and beat Sylvia for, quote, gluttony. Wow. 
At one point, after Sylvia had been locked in the basement, Jenny somehow managed to get a letter out to Diana, Mm. describing what was going on, and asked Diana to call the police and rescue them. Yeah. Poor Um, Jenny. I know. And that's a... I don't know. I'm not going to go back to why people blame Jenny for things, but... Jenny was doing what she knew how to do. Yeah. I mean, I just, whenever I hear that, and I, you hear it a lot when you research this case, mm-hmm. I just want to scream. She is 13 years old. Yeah. She's a 13 year old girl in a subjugated position. Yeah. You know, you can't expect her to be Superman. Yeah. You know? So. She, again, she thought Jenny was exaggerating and that they just wanted to come live with her. But clearly kind of Diana got a weird gut feeling about the situation. Mm. So she eventually did go to the house to confront Gertrude. Gertrude told her that Lester said Diana was not to be allowed in the home and not allowed to see the girls and that she should call the police if Diana came. Wow. Now, what Diana does is Diana hid in a nearby bush until she spotted Jenny outside and called her over. Mm. Jenny simply said she wasn't allowed to talk and ran away. Wow. Which, again, set warning flags for Diana, who then called social services. Yeah. Social services finally visit the house. Gertrude stated that Sylvia was no longer there. Remember, Sylvia's locked in the basement. Mm Mm-hmm. So she stated that Sylvia was no longer there, that she had been kicked out for being unclean and a prostitute, Mm. and that Sylvia had run away. She didn't know where Sylvia was. Gertrude threatened Jenny that if Jenny told the social worker anything, she would be locked in the basement with Sylvia. Mm. So, of course, Jenny told the social worker that Sylvia had run away. Yeah. The social worker put in her final report that no further investigation was necessary. Wow. Which would not happen now because if you heard about a teenage runaway, the next thing you're doing is filing a police report, Mm -hmm. missing persons report, and we're finding the teenage runaway. But Mm -hmm. that just tells us how much that culture has shifted. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I... I'm stuck in the middle of, like, I don't want to blame the system, but I'm so mad at it. Because a lot of the safety nets that we rely on now simply weren't there. But I will say that even though they are there now, I can't say that people don't slip and don't die and these things don't happen anymore. Yeah. Oh, they. I mean, we've mentioned Gabriel Fernandez. Mm -hmm. Like, what, this is the third episode now, I think? And Mm -hmm. that's... You know, and I think like, yeah, I think you're right. Like it, we want to blame the system so much, but in that context, there effectively was no system. Like let's, let's be real about that. Like they're just sure there was department of social services, but, but again, I think it also comes down to like, we talked about in the Amanda case, like kind of passing the buck between North Dakota and South Dakota and whose vicinity was, it was, this is like oh, well, she ran away, so it's not a social services matter, it's a police matter, so... Yeah, or, like, this is a domestic issue, so it doesn't belong with us. I mean, we were listening to the police uh, scanner the other night as we were drifting off to sleep because... (laughs) So relaxing. (laughs) It's so relaxing. And somebody had called in about a woman um, whose husband had stolen her cell phone and punched her in the face and knocked her down. Yeah. 
and left the house. And one of the people that got on the radio to answer it said, well, that's a that's a domestic. That's not us. We're not going to respond to that. Mm. And I'm like, the fuck you are. But I mean, I think the you know, we're kidding ourselves. If we don't think there's a billion ways that the bot can get past, you know, can we officially coin the term? systemic bystanding or systems bystanding or something like that yeah because that is what it is it is it totally is like all the bystander research places the blame on these individual people who don't actually have much power when the systems that do have the power pass it the buck all the fucking time yeah yeah and then you end up creating a cultural narrative where people are blaming a 13 year old polio survivor for not saving her sister right and that is precisely why uh thank you systemic bystander effect thank you can this just become a politics podcast now (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry mid-wretched listener yeah now it's (laughs) mid-politics we're gonna talk a lot about mike pence But no, I mean, I think like the stuff we're talking about, it intersects with politics so much and with, you know, the social strata so much. So I think it does a disservice to these cases not to put it in that context. Crime will never be apolitical. Like, right. It, yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. That's another fucking wretched merch <laughs> quote. Yes. Crime is never apolitical. I mean, I'm in the middle of researching something that is taking me into like, just tomes of research about how jurisdictional issues work on reservations. Oh. And it's dizzying. I mean, it's it's consuming like every spare 15 minutes I have to sit down and do some research, which is usually how I do it, like 15-minute bursts, is like I can't get out of that mm-hmm. to move on to the next parts of my case because it's so complicated. Yeah. So this brings us up to October. Yes. So the girls have been in the home for four months now. Mm-hmm. So July, August, July, September. <laughs> no, July, July, September. August. <laughs> so they've been. Y'all, she's using her fingers right now. <laughs> I have a doctorate. Do not edit this out. <laughs> just kidding you edit whatever you want i'll leave it in i'll leave this in everybody deserves to laugh at me so the girls i mean we've laughed at me before i talked about satan panic (laughs) (laughs) oh god so this is necessary levity because october in this house is really bad yeah guys it's really bad this might also me just be me avoiding talking about October. It might be because it's it's bad. It's really bad. Okay, so, so October first, Gertrude calls a family meeting mm. to discuss ways that they need to better get along. Mm. I don't have any other details about that meeting. I just thought it was a really interesting thing to include. Yeah, and it is included in so many of the recounts of this case. So I feel like there's we can spot the importance of that even if we don't know what was said. Yes. Mm-hmm. October 5th is Lester and Betty's last visit to the girls. Mm. Again, they they didn't have any reason to be concerned from what they saw. They gave the girls money for new shoes and told Gertrude that they would be back in three weeks. Okay. October 6th was Sylvia's last day seen at school. Mm. So she had been kind of pulled in and out of school 
she would go for a day, not go for three days, go for a day, mm. not seen for a week. Every time I see kids like that, I start to have panic attacks for them. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and again, now we report truancy. Mm-hmm. And there's, I, I, I know people hate truancy laws, mm-hmm. but that's a reason why I will, that's one of the few reasons I will find validity mm-hmm. in them. Totally. October 12th, Sylvia is sent permanently to the basement. Mm-hmm. Quote, for not keeping herself. The abuse continues to spiral over the next few days after the 12th into Sylvia being forced to clean the basement with her feces, eat her feces, right. and drink her own urine. And when we say that they cast her downstairs because she couldn't keep herself. It's because she lost the ability to hold her bowels or her urine. Yes. From all the repeated abuse to her abdomen. That's how I understood it. Yes. She had become completely incontinent. So Mm -hmm. enuretic and capretic from the beatings and the malnutrition. Yeah. She was wetting the bed and the couches. Basically, there was no bladder control whatsoever. So yes, um saying not able to keep herself she could not use the bathroom she could not hold anything and then gertrude has the darkness in her to use that then against her to perpetuate this abuse in a place that is just so dark what i thought was really interesting and there is actually if you read through the court documents there's an interesting exchange about this so sylvia was eventually chained to a mattress Mm-hmm. Gertrude said because she couldn't stop wetting the bed. And in the kind of the back and forth exchange with Stephanie and the lawyer, he just kind of keeps repeating. So she was wetting the bed. So you chained her to the mattress. Why did you chain her to the mattress? Right. And Stephanie would say, we chained her there until she stopped wetting the bed. And he would say, you chained her to the mattress because she was wetting the bed. Mm. And they kind of repeat that a couple of times. And Stephanie just acts completely shrug about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the logic that's been taught in this family, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that like, so what that lawyer's questioning is getting at is what it feels like to me is that it's not logical. If you're wetting the bed or you keep having an accident mm-hmm. in one spot, you remove them from that spot that's logical right but you're forcing Gertrude's no yeah Gertrude skipped straight from that to try to use it as another punishment right like Mm -hmm. maybe you'll stop wetting the bed if you have to lay in it if you have to sit in it yeah Yeah. and that's you could see that that type of logic repeated over the course of your lifetime as a 15 year old like Stephanie is Mm -hmm. and I don't I I guess what I'm saying is I don't know that she was lying. I think yeah. she was saying, no, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that's what makes sense. You know? I, I do think these, a lot of the kids, their heads were so twisted. Yeah. And, you know, I, I might beat Stephanie up a little bit about it, but who in abuse of a relationship hasn't kind of internalized that logic of, mm-hmm. Well, if I don't want to be abused, I should stop doing this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's why gaslighting works because yeah. you end up believing it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, if she wanted if she wanted to be unchanged from the bed, all she had to do was stop wetting the bed. Right. 
And I think, like you said, yeah, I don't know if Stephanie was being evasive or anything there. Like, that was the logic that she was taught. Yeah, yeah. So Sylvia continued to be burned with cigarettes. She would be starved um, and then countered with force feeding. She was in a complete daze at this point. Yeah. Even the Vermilions, when they would see her, described her as zombified and covered in sores. Jenny said that Sylvia didn't care if she lived or died. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Not only that, then they additionally started forcing her to take scalding hot baths. And they would literally rub salt in her wounds. Yeah. By October 19th, Gertrude can see Sylvia's health declining. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was it was apparent she was dying. Yeah. Gertrude forced Sylvia to write a letter to her parents, saying that she was a prostitute and her parents should be ashamed of her. Ugh. October 23rd, there was another Pepsi bottle incident. Yeah. And also the branding incident. I was just going to ask. I think that starts at about this time. Yep. Yeah. This is another one where if you are squeamish at all, I'll have you kind of flip forward a few minutes. Yeah. So the branding incident, Gertrude started the branding, but mm-hmm. she got tired and weak and she couldn't finish it. So she told Ricky Hobbs to brand in to Sylvia's stomach I'm a prostitute and proud of it yeah he defended himself in court by saying I did it lightly and this is we were going to talk at some point about the photos yeah and our intention is not to put these photos on social media I did, yeah. um, because it should be a choice whether or not you look at things like that but I think just to kind of call that out when you look at that branding the photographs of that branding there's nothing light Mm -hmm. about that i mean it's the thing that kind of sticks out in my mind is the exclamation point at the end which had to be i mean it was a full inverted triangle Uh filled in right which meant that somebody had to scrape that skin away yep that's not that's not dragging a sewing needle over somebody's skin yeah that's tearing in like, you know? that's, that's a, there's no unintentionality with that. No. And no. again, we, we will not put these photos up. They're available if you want to see them. But like Tommy said, it it's your choice if you want to see them. And I don't want to expose people who don't want to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rough. Yeah, and I think if you do see them, especially the branding, there's no way, shape, or form that any part of that is an accident or... I did it lightly. Yeah. I was I mean, nice the, about it. There's penmanship to it. I mean, it, there was intention. There, yeah. Without a doubt. In addition to that, he branded her with... It was supposed to be an S, but it looks like a three. Mm. Um, I don't know what the S was. Yeah, no one was ever able to explain that. I read one blog at one point that thought it may have stood for slut. Mm, But I didn't, yeah, but I didn't find anything else where they were using that word. Yeah. But it makes sense, though. Yeah. And it felt like a scarlet letter sort of thing. It very much felt like a scarlet letter. Um, 
which is actually then the next thing after they finished that was they all taunted her and started saying, you can't get married now. What are you going to do? Yeah. And she just very flatly said, I guess there's nothing I can do. Yeah. And then the kids got mad and Gertrude got mad and they beat her again. Mm-hmm. Um, they kept inviting more and more kids to go over and gawk at her. At this point, she was so out of it, she couldn't stand up. She couldn't even speak. Yeah. And so Gertrude could see that she was basically dying. Yeah. But Gertrude also knew that that meant she needed a way out of this situation. Right. So what she decides to do is she's going to force Sylvia to write her a letter. And then she's going to blindfold her, have the boys take her out into the woods, and abandon her with a letter. Mm. I'm going to read the letter. Um, It's rough. Again, this is what Gertrude forced a dying girl to write. Yeah. I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I gave them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. When they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. They also put on my stomach. I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything I could do to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I also cost Gertie doctor's bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all of her kids. Wow. And she actually was able to write that letter. So you also think about like the physical state that she was in mm-hmm. and the emotional state that she was in that I don't know what kind of threat must have been over her head mm-hmm. for her to gather the strength to even write that at this point. I just, I, from what, from everything, it just feels like she just gave up. Oh, you want to beat me? Okay. Oh, you want to force feed me? Okay. Yeah. I mean, how do you not? She has no strength to fight back. Yeah. After she finished writing that, John forced fed her again, but she couldn't eat, so he beat her with a curtain rod. Mm. They bathed her and dragged her back down to the basement, and after all of that was over, Sylvia tried to escape. She started screaming and all of that, but obviously... Nobody responded to her screams from the basement. She knew she had overheard Gertrude talk about the plan to drop her off into the woods. Jenny tried to sneak down to the basement to give her some water. And that's when Sylvia told Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. Mm. She tried. That is something that always sticks out to me every single time I revisit this case is just that that conversation Mm -hmm. I think out of all of it stands out to me more than anything else it's it's such a hard thing like I for Jenny to hear that yeah and just for Sylvia to know like and for Sylvia to say it yeah yeah it's unbelievable at one point Sylvia did try to run away yeah um but she was just too weak she kept screaming for help. One of the neighbors admitted that they heard this, 
and they were gonna call the police but the screaming stopped at 3 30 a.m so he thought mm. it was fine hmm. again it's not fine yeah wow the morning of october 26th um sylvia could not move or speak yeah gertrude tried to force feed her a donut and milk but sylvia literally couldn't move her mouth to open yeah. to eat it yeah so she was thrown back in the basement she became delirious paula demanded that she recite the alphabet just like mm. you know last stage of i have power over you yeah but again sylvia couldn't speak she couldn't stand up she couldn't do anything i remember reading once that she couldn't get past the letter d yeah 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 so they tried to get her out of the basement but she couldn't get up the stairs like she couldn't stand under her own strength so gertrude stood on her head yeah fucking a gertrude thought she was faking it and just left her there that's unbelievable how far gone this woman was is mind-boggling no it was around 5 30 p.m on October 26th that Ricky Hobbs comes to the house to find Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's body. Mm. Again, Stephanie's a weird person. She's an interesting factor here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Around 6.30 p.m., Ricky calls the police from a payphone Mm. to have them come to Gertrude's house. Gertrude let the cops in and led them to the body and then quickly handed them Sylvia's letter that she had been forced to write. Wow. So she was ready. She was, she was ready. at the ready. Yeah. Gertrude claimed that she was doctoring Sylvia after she had run away from home and just showed up in this condition. Mm. Now, initially, Jenny gave the police the rehearsed speech that Gertrude had told her. Yeah. That Sylvia had run away, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But the clever girl managed to get a cop alone long enough mm. to whisper... You get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Yeah. Jenny made a formal statement to the police. She spilled all the beans on everything that had happened in that house. And they were all arrested within hours. That's pretty amazing. Not that there's like any saving grace here at all. No, none whatsoever. Yeah. In addition to arresting Gertrude, Paula, and Stephanie, John, Coy, and Richard Hobbs were also taken into custody. Yeah. So they were all taken to juvenile detention, and the younger children were detained at Indianapolis Children's Home, basically because they didn't know what to do with these kids now. Yeah, and in the course of all this, there's literally a one-year-old in the house. There's, like, a one-year-old, an eight-year-old. Yeah. Like, we don't talk about it much, but I don't think the younger kids knew what to do or what was going on. Yeah, and that's, like, how could they? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, so five other children from the community were arrested by October 29th. However, all were released into the custody of their parents and subpoenaed to testify. Yeah. So that's a lot. It is a lot. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time kind of talking about the trial, but we are almost done. I promise. No, it's, I'm, I'm good. I'm chilling. All right. I mean, I'm not chilling. Everything is terrible, but. This case makes everything terrible. It makes everything terrible. And it also, like, I keep thinking about when we were talking about Bruce Berniser and we had these kind of slightly differing reactions to his being charged as a juvenile mm-hmm. in a couple of those charges against his sisters. 
And I think there's like a lot of reasons to call into question how children are, you know, tried and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and prosecuted. But you wonder with something like this, like, where's that? Where is the line for the kids that were taken in and released to their parents? I mean, what mm-hmm. is the what's the culpability there? What's the mm-hmm. what was the right thing to do if that wasn't the right thing to do? Yeah. Like, you know, what role did these kids have? What responsibility did these kids have? Yeah. And even like Ricky Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. Like, yeah. Where is their responsibility in this? And yeah. we will cover it in more cases. I have one on the docket for us to do a deep dive into this, but there needs to be a more in-depth conversation about how we charge juveniles for Absolutely. things like this. And I think this one is especially difficult because there was clearly the manipulation of Gertrude. There was, yeah. And I think there's also... There's some kind of difference, and I'm not sure I could put my finger on it right now, between Coy and Ricky mm-hmm. and the kids that were paying a nickel to come and see something. Like, yeah. you know, I think you're in that situation and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll pay a nickel to punch somebody in the face or whatever. Well, and especially when it's like there's an adult there telling you it's OK. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't know necessarily what like come over and punch Sylvia means until you see it. And mm-hmm. then it's like. I can't imagine that those kids weren't like, what the fuck is happening here? You know, once they actually saw it. It's hard for me to not think about the Bobo doll studies. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> yeah. Another yeah, weird no, thing think... from intro psych. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's interesting. Like, what... What can we normalize? What can we normalize? And I just... I mean, they were part of the building the culture of this yeah. as... But they were also victims of the culture of it. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Especially Ricky Hobbs. I have a yeah. lot of really mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Me too. I'm going to talk briefly about the trial because it was ridiculous. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. Yeah. They kept the trial in Indianapolis. And I know, like I've mentioned before, like I have mixed feelings about moving trials. But I do kind of think in this situation, especially because it comes back to bite them in the ass, maybe you need to move the trial. Yeah. Because yeah. this was plastered all over the papers and there was no way for it to not be right everybody knew exactly what was going on who was guilty who was arrested even if it wasn't published in the papers this town was small enough everybody was talking right yeah that's true that's true yeah so stephanie ended up not being tried for anything but she did act as a witness for her family and admitted to being part of the abuse so i'm guessing she cut a deal yeah um And up until later in life, later in life, she completely changed her story and denied any involvement whatsoever. Hmm. She defended the boys, especially Koi. One of the places where I got a lot of the information for this was a blog called uh, For the Love of Sylvia. It includes a lot of actual like firsthand messages from Stephanie, like communications with a blog writer and Stephanie where Stephanie... Honestly, it's just, it's annoying. Her messages are annoying. She constantly contradicts herself. She says things that make no sense, like insisting that her and Sylvia were childhood friends. Mm. Like they knew each other. It doesn't make sense because she wasn't, no. Yeah. And she constantly refers to Sylvia as silly and says, oh, that's what I called her when we were kids. Which, Mm. there's no other account of that. Yeah. And she really paints herself as innocent of everything. She, you can tell there's still a little bit of brainwashing in there because she's still talking about, like, we need to help victims of prostitution. 
Right. That's super interesting. Yeah. So if you guys want to check that out, I, I found it really interesting. Yeah. Leroy knew what was the lead prosecutor on this case. And I just want to kind of mention briefly, because he worked really closely with Jenny um, mm. and the Likens family. He reportedly just like practically adopted Jenny. Aww. He was so kind and so sweet to her. He bought her a new leg brace. He treated her equally to his daughters, like invited her Aww. into their home. Jenny said, I just wish me and Sylvia could have been left with people like this. No. Yeah, was, me too. Like their relationship sounds so sweet and so pure yeah. and just like exactly what she needed. Yeah. Like and, reparenting. And it probably helped. Yeah. Like she got to be reparented and she got yeah. to hopefully like restore any faith in humanity, honestly. <laughs> Uh, the autopsy of Sylvia showed that she had suffered in excess of 150 wounds and that she was extremely emaciated. It was clear that they had been made over the course of weeks and were in various stages of healing. In addition to burns, bruises, and nerve damage, her vaginal cavity was almost completely swollen shut. Jesus. Now, despite Gertrude's accusations that Sylvia was three months pregnant, there was obviously no evidence that she was pregnant or ever had been. Her fingernails were broken backward. Layers of skin had been pulled back. She had infections on her face. Mm. And she had chewed through her lips. God, that poor child. Now, the official cause of death was a subdural hematoma on her right temple. I'm guessing from where Gertrude stood on her. Yeah. Either that or it was from when she was thrown down the stairs, which also explains why she couldn't talk, why she couldn't stand up, anything like that. Yeah, because she essentially had a stroke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It was determined that she had died at least eight hours before the police found her body, so around 10.30 a.m. Wow. And she was likely bathed after her death. So when we talk about taking her up the stairs to bathe her, Mm -hmm. that was not her living body that yeah that was not a kindness that was to hide evidence Mm -hmm. sylvia was laid to rest at oak hill cemetery in lebanon indiana Mm. in front of about a hundred family and friends wow a lot of members of the community were called to testify um numerous children confessed to quote having fun with sylvia Mm. both witnessing and partaking in the abuse Adults admitted that they had seen her suffering and heard her crying and did nothing. Yeah. They all said that it felt like it wasn't their business to call the police. Mm. Ricky Hobbs, John Banaszewski, and Coy Hubbard were all convicted of manslaughter. Good. But because of their age, they were all sentenced to 2 to 21 years at Indiana State Reformatory. Wow, yeah. And they only served two years. I was going to say nobody served more than a couple of years. Yeah, no. They all admitted to only minor abuses. And I think that this is what upsets me most about such short sentences is that nobody took responsibility for this girl's death. Right. Like I said, Hobbs said, oh, I etched her lightly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I only hit her four to five times because she flinched. Yeah. They would say things like, oh, my mom did that to me. Right. Um, And Gertie told me to do it. Yeah. And this is why, kind of like we were talking about earlier, like during the day when we were just texting, like, again, like, it's not to, like, prompt anybody to look at those photos because certainly, like, I have a very hard time with that kind of stuff sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
I just think it's really important in this case to talk about the extent of her injuries. Yeah. Because that is what makes it impossible for those stories from those perpetrators to be in any way considered as truth. You look at the injuries that she had, that she was suffering from, the extremity of it is so beyond the pale that, you know, there's no way that that happens as a result of, you know, nobody accidental. Like nobody dies no. like that accidentally. No, no, not at all. And it it was so extreme and so hideous and so ugly. And I feel like that it's just really important to say that because it's there's no reasonable way that anything that people are saying to say like, oh, it was just a light etching. It was just like, oh, I kicked her. That's not what happened here. Yeah. This oh, was we were just playing around. We were playing judo. No, no. The, yeah, this was extensive, extensive violence yeah. that she suffered for a very long time. So all of them were released after two years. Yeah. Um, after all that. After all that. Hobbs died of cancer at 21. That's the other thing. Mm. Most of these people died young. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Hubbard continued to have brushes with the law. He was married. He had five kids. He died in 2007. And John went on to become a minister. That's really interesting. And to counsel children of divorce. Mm. He died in 2005. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder. She was sentenced to a life term at Indiana Women's Prison. Mm. Um, what's interesting was, so we talked about the timeline. This this uh, trial happened really fast. Yeah, which back in the day they often did. Mm. I mean, the, the months-long trials that we know today were not normal 50 years ago. But she went into labor during the trial. Oh, she did. Yeah, she was allowed to. Wow. She was allowed out of jail to go to the hospital and deliver, which, okay, great, um, and to take respite. When she came back, she did testify against Gertrude, and mm. apparently Gertrude just glowered at her. I'm sure she did. Stared yeah. her down. Yeah, because that was the one person in this entire equation that Gertrude saw as a peer in a way. I think that Paula was as equally involved. Yeah. A hundred percent equal to yeah. what Gertrude was doing. Right. I mean, I think the the only way in which she's not an equal is just that she was the one that was taught to do this mm-hmm. by Gertrude, right? Yeah. So Gertrude has that, but I think she was every bit a part an equal partner in this. Yeah. yeah. And an equal mastermind too. And I think the two egged each other on. Yes. Yes. I think so too. Now, Gertrude initially denied any knowledge of what happened. She said, oh, well, because of the drugs I was on. I Mm. was on too many barbiturates. I had no idea what happened to that poor girl. Unfortunately, there was just too damn much evidence against her. Yeah, thank God for that. She confessed on October 27th that she was aware that other kids were abusing Sylvia, but that Mm. she had nothing to do with it. But when she was confronted with all of the evidence, in addition to the other children's statements that she had directed the abuse and participated in it herself, she did plead guilty. Mm. Then her lawyers tried to use... So when the medical examiner testified, he said, quote, that was the work of a madman. What happened Mm. to that girl? Mm -hmm. So her lawyer tried to use that to fuel an insanity defense. Ah, he said, quote, is that the actions of a sane, normal person or the actions of a person who has lost all contact with reality? Mm. How could anybody look at that woman and say she's sane? 
you'll have to live with your conscience for the rest of your life if you send an insane woman to the electric chair. Wow. Yeah. So she was found guilty on May 19th, 1966. She was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to a life-term Indiana women's prison. Mm. Now, of course, this case never fucking ends. Right. In 1971, Gertrude and Paula were both granted a new trial. Mm-hmm. Stating that their hearings in Indianapolis were prejudicial. Yes. Because everybody already knew what had happened. Right. And that's what bites them in the ass for not moving up. Exactly. So yeah, Paula... Which I'm a full proponent of. Yeah. I get I'm coming around to it. I get it. Okay, yeah. fine. I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so... This time, Paula pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and only served two more years in prison. So she was released in 1973. Insanity. She was released and went on to live her life. She got married, lived on a farm in Iowa under an assumed name until, bum, 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 she got caught. Yes, she did. She lied on a background check and got a job as a teaching assistant in Iowa. Oh, that's so messed up. Do your background checks thoroughly. That's right. And on her second trial, Gertrude was found guilty again of first-degree murder and sentenced to life, but this time with the possibility of parole. Mm. When Gertrude came up for parole, Jenny spoke, saying, No one on this earth will ever know the pain, hurt, and suffering me and Sylvia went through. Gertrude Benishevsky should never be allowed out of prison, but she should stay there locked up for the rest of her life because she put Sylvia where she is forever. Unfortunately, the parole board wasn't convinced by that yeah and gertrude was released in 1985 that's incredible and here's again what drives me insane is she never takes fucking responsibility no she doesn't gertrude died shortly after she got released because she had lung cancer totally the evil ate her but upon her release and on her parole hearing gertrude said quote i'm not sure what role i had in it because i was on drugs i never really knew her I take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia. I wish I could undo it, but I can't. I'm sorry. I'm just asking for mercy and nothing else. Good lord. Fuck that. Wow. Something that has always stood out to me and that is very stark is is her release photo. Oh, yeah. Her prison release photo where every hair, her eyeliner, her mascara is all perfect. Yeah. Uh, so she changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and moved to Iowa. Hmm. I don't have any evidence she moved back with Paula, but I think she did. Wasn't that her maiden name or something very close to that? Van Fossen name? was her maiden name, yes. Gotcha. Paula okay. changed her name to Paula Pace. Paula's mugshot also is the most... Mm, yeah. It has this, like, the most obnoxious fucking smirk on it. It really does. It really, really does. She's like, mmm. And she's like, okay, haha. Haha. Whatever. Yeah. <sighs> it really, really does. It really does. And she looks a lot like her mother. Yeah. And that too is kind of chilling. So the Sylvia Likens case clearly had a huge impact on Indiana. It completely changed child abuse reporting laws in Indiana. Yeah. yeah. Requiring everyone in Indiana, regardless of age or profession, to report any suspicion of child abuse to law enforcement. Yes. They started to push schools and other children's organizations to focus more on recognizing and reporting signs of abuse. Just like Tommy. Yeah. What up? Yay. 
you're a safety net for children. I know it. And I mean, really not to like drag this out more than we did kind of when we talked about Amanda Freud's dad, <laughs> but, um, but I will say that like those trainings are very, very thorough. Yeah. And like you are given a lot of material and a lot of support to like kind of know what you're looking at. And I know that we talked about it with Amanda and I'm just going to briefly mention it again here, but like this is a true crime podcast that we talk about the worst cases you can think of, but most child abuse, most calls to DCFS that we make are Mm -hmm. the kid doesn't have lunch. Could you get them some resources? Yeah. The kid doesn't have a coat. Could you help him out? And those are perfectly valid reasons to call and to find connections for yes totally and i like one of the most kind of poignant ones that i was ever involved in just revolved around dirty clothes yeah more often than not when i've been involved in anything like that it's stuff like that yeah yeah it's same not having a coat it's um repeated cases of lice like stuff mm-hmm. like that you mm-hmm. know yeah it's not gonna get a child pulled from a home it's gonna get resources hopefully allocated you know in that direction and I think that's the real reason why I tell people not to hesitate is it's not to get a kid pulled out of a home it's to get the kid resources yeah and at least I can speak for the Hoosier State when I say that when kids are pulled out of homes it's because they need to be pulled out of those homes. yes yes I can say that from my experience too yeah it's extremely rare but it's always there's a good reason for it yeah so this is one of those cases where like the 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 story of it and the what happened and everything that Sylvia went through was so horrifically just beyond the pale atrocious but it's one thing that we can at least say made a huge widespread positive impact on this state yeah it oh, has yeah. um in a way like that feels like kind of her legacy yeah. like that she you know, she's the reason that we have a much better social safety net than we ever did before. And I hate that that happened to her. We would all rather that she lived and this never happened. Yeah. But the fact that Indiana was able to learn from this. Yeah. I guess is the only bright spot we can find. Yeah, it's a cold comfort, but... In Lebanon, Indiana, Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center was also built in her honor with the mission statement that, quote, we work every day to remember her name, honor her life, and protect the children of Boone County from the same anguish and torture Sylvia endured. That's a beautiful mission statement. Yeah. In 2001, the state also erected a memorial to Sylvia in Willard Park in Indianapolis Mm. with a placard that says, This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indiana Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. Mm, That's beautiful, too. I want to visit that next time I'm in Indy. The Banaszewski House at 3850 East New York Street stood until 2009 when it was declared a nuisance to the state. (laughs) and torn down good um i love that verbiage (laughs) it is a nuisance it is it 100 is it's a dark mark yeah and that's uh, yeah 
that's really all I have about that case. Um, yeah, it's a rough one. I, I want to say that the family kind of went on and recovered, but to be completely honest, I don't know if they all really ever did. Yeah. How do you recover from something like that? Lester and Betty never recovered. They eventually divorced. Um, Mm. Jenny has repeatedly asked that they not be blamed for this. Um, I know that we Mm. talked about at the beginning, they don't deserve that blame. And I think that they really believe they were doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, Jenny tried to go on marry and live the rest of her life, but she says that she still had nightmares and flashbacks for most of her life. Mm, Wow. She also died fairly young. Yeah. Diana is still alive, I believe. Mm. Um, One of the older brothers, actually, really tragically, I believe he had a pretty severe case of schizophrenia. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just looking at her uh, find a grave page, and it says that... um, her twin brother died before she did, um, and she's also preceded, obviously, by her sister, Sylvia Likens. Surviving sister, Diane, is now Diane Bedwell. Brother, Danny, is deceased. Yeah. So there's only one surviving sibling, actually, and it's um, Diane. Diane had a weird situation a few years back, too. Did she? What happened? Her and her husband were, like, driving back from, I believe it was Las Vegas. Like, they had just kind of taken a vacation. Mm. And the car went off the road and they were stuck for like two weeks. Oh my gosh. In the car. Her husband died in the car and she barely made it out alive before they found her. Wow. Yeah. How horrible. Like I, uh, this family feels so cursed. It really does. I think Lester lived to be quite old. He died at 86. That's kind of interesting too. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that you uh, took us down a tough road I'm sorry. here. No, I mean, it's the it's the stories that we're trying to tell. And this is one where um, it's a story that's been told and told and told. And obviously there are movies and, you know, we wanted to tell it to give it justice. And I think it's one of those things that like... You know, some things you tell and you say over and over and over again to make sure that they're not forgotten. And this feels like one of those ones to me. Like, we can't let this be forgotten, you know? I feel like going through this for me was very much like, it's like giving myself narrative therapy. Yeah. Because I I do remember just being so bothered by this case. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. And going through it, and I'm not any less bothered by it. But some things I hope we never forget, even if it's hard to remember them. Yes, exactly. That's a really beautiful way to put that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think probably a good space for us to wish our listeners well and hope that, you know, if you needed breaks that you took them and if you needed deep breaths that you took them and and that you hung with us for this long, though, because this is a really, really important yeah, story. I know that this a really was, important case. This was a pretty deep dive into it. And I know I was saying before that I wasn't really satisfied with a lot of the other podcasts on this case. They were short or. Mm-hmm. And now I guess I kind of understanding why. <laughs> Cause it's yeah, because it's hard. It's hard to talk about. And I think it's like 
It's short because people really focus in on the details of the physical abuse. And I think there's some sensationalizing that happens. You know, people talk about the hot dog. They talk about the Pepsi bottle. You know, we hear those things. We see those images in our heads over and over and over again. But there's never enough time given to the why and the people. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's a purpose that we have, it's the why and it's the people and it's the systems. Yeah. So if we accomplished all of those things, even a little bit, then, yeah. you know, then good for us. Maybe we go on for too long talking about the systems and kind of zooming out and zooming in and going back and forth between those two. But yeah, it is. It's what we but. do. That all that said, go take a break, eat some chocolate, cuddle a puppy, um, yeah. or a cat if that's your thing. Yeah, and you know what? Honest to God, like keep an eye out because any one of us could be the difference between a child's safety or even something as simple as a child having a clean pair of socks in the winter. Yeah, and both of those are important. They are. They really are. All right. We're going to leave this one on a downer, and I'm sorry. Well, we're still going to tell people to be nice. Eat cheese. Eat extra cheese today. Please eat extra cheese today. Yeah. And that we love you. We love you. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Please don't run away from us next week. No. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to make a plug about the socials, but. All right. We love you anyway. Hope that you come back. Yeah. We hope that you all come back. Do you want to plug next week's episode? So, uh, yeah, I think briefly I can definitely do that. I mean, you talk about systems and how um, complicated and mired they can be and all sorts of different things. Next week we'll be taking you to uh, back to the Dakotas for a conversation about missing and murdered Indigenous women. And in particular, uh, one specific case involving somebody who was trying really, really hard to make her community a better place and was murdered and the way that the case was handled was complicated and uh, in many ways underreported so we'll be talking about all of that um, on top of what happened (laughs) because you have to talk about what happened in the context of why it happened the way that it did so come back and hear it all right we love you guys all right peace out y'all bye bye